Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, I am Tony Urbina, the Medical Director for the Clinical Education Initiative's HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center of Excellence. I am a provider and professor of medicine who has been working in the field of HIV for over 20 years. In honor of World AIDS Day on December 1st, we are going to take a closer look at HIV health disparities in the United States. It has been 40 years since the first known case of HIV was documented and we have come a long way in the past 40 years. HIV is now a chronic disease with safe and effective treatments available that are easier for people living with HIV to take and be undetectable. We also have highly effective HIV prevention options like PEP and PrEP. We are now able to offer new long-acting injectables for HIV treatment and soon for HIV prevention. While we celebrate these achievements, We aren't seeing the decreases we imagined would come along with the advent of these medical interventions. While rates of HIV transmission, morbidity, and mortality have decreased overall, disparities persist. For example, new cases of HIV have sharply decreased among white men who have sex with men, but Black and Latino men who have sex with men have not seen the same advantages. Similarly, HIV rates remain higher among transgender women of color. We see that communities who experience multiple forms of oppression, including racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and poverty, have not benefited as much from medical advances in HIV treatment and prevention. To end the HIV epidemic, we will need to do more to meet the needs of these communities. On today's episode, I was able to speak with two experts to learn more about these disparities and what providers can do to address them. First, I spoke with Kenyon Farrow, an HIV advocate. In my conversation with Kenyon, he discussed many of the historical, social, and structural factors that have shaped HIV health inequities. Next, I spoke with Dr. Sabrina Gard, a primary care provider specializing in HIV In my conversation with Dr. Gard, she shared examples of how these inequities show up in her work with her patients and what providers can do to address them. Both discussions are helpful in unpacking what we are doing right, what we may be doing wrong, and how we can do better. I hope you will find these conversations as interesting and important as I did. For our first segment, we are joined by Kenyon Farrow, Kenyon Farrow is a public health and infectious disease activist, writer, and editor. His expertise is in public health, healthcare, social safety net, and social justice. Kenyon has coordinated campaigns, large and small, local, national, and global, on issues related to criminalization, mass imprisonment, homelessness, and LGBT rights. Since June 2021, Kenyon has served as Managing Director of Advocacy and Organizing of Prep for All, a health advocacy and equity organization dedicated to eradicating HIV throughout the United States. Welcome, Kenyon, and thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Abina. It's my pleasure to be here. Please tell me a little bit about what makes this topic so important to you. Well, HIV as an issue is very important to me. First, on a personal level, I remember, you know, the kind of advent of HIV in terms of our discovery in the United States. So this is the 40th anniversary of the, you know, MMWR that noticed the pneumonia in several gay men in a few cities in the United States. And I was six years old at the time. (laughs) But I was already kind of a precocious kid and I watched the news <laughs> at the time. So I, and I remember some of those early discussions in my family, you know, kind of about what was happening. And I had an aunt who uh, died in the early 80s. I think she died in 1983 or 84 wow. in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm from. In hindsight, we actually now believe that she died of, of HIV related causes. 
but nobody thought to look for it uh, because she was a heterosexual black woman, no history of, you know, injection drug use or or the other things that people would have, you know, probably signaled now or, or, or signaled at the time, I'm sorry, as maybe as somebody who was at risk. But she, you know, got sick and then died of a, you know, kind of random rare infection within a year of first noticing that she was, you know, something was wrong. So I, I you know, kind of remember that. So carrying on into Black gay man, even though as an HIV negative Black gay man, HIV has defined my entire life in a lot of ways. Again, just talking from early in childhood to coming into my own sort of sexuality, you know, HIV has always kind of been there in the uh, around the mid 2000s, around the time I turned 30, I remember there was a year where it felt like I was discovering either so many of my black and brown other gay friends were either serial converting at that time or were disclosing to me that they were HIV positive. And um, I was already doing a lot of work around LGBT issues and particularly around LGBT youth at that time. It just it made sense that I needed to also be thinking about HIV as a social justice issue, uh, given its disparate impact on my community. And here we are today. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I can definitely relate with, you know, HIV and AIDS being really at the forefront of our sexual exploration and coming out. So kind of ingrained in what gay men were experiencing, you know, speaking kind of about brown and black gay men, who bears the greatest burden of HIV risk in the United States? And what do you feel are some of the factors that have created these disparities? Sure. So at this point, I mean, it's been true for a a number of years that Black, quote unquote, men who have sex with men, uh, so Mm -hmm. gay, bisexual, you know, queer men are uh, have some of the highest uh, disparities uh, in the country, as well as Black transgender women. Um, And then when we look at Latino or or Latinx communities, um, we also see Latino, quote unquote, men who have sex with men have the highest rate of growth of HIV infections in the country and probably like in the last five years. And so that is the concentration of the epidemic. And I think that specific to Black gay men and trans women for many Mm -hmm. years, why the epidemic looks the way that it does, I think in in large part because it, it took, frankly, a long time for there to be resources dedicated to the community. So I remember in 1998, I was uh, still living in Cleveland and was working for the AIDS Task Force of Greater Cleveland. I was probably 22, 23 years old, just out of college, really. And I remember AIDS Task Force of Greater Cleveland getting the first MSM of color grant that the CDC had constructed. And that pot of money had to cover the entire country and cover Black, Latinx, API, Native and Indigenous folks, like all in one, you know, in in one pot of money. And that was 1998. And those grant dollars rolled out in 1999. So we're talking at that point, what, 20 years into the epidemic before there was federal dedicated money to address the epidemic. And we started to see around those the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, you know, data showing 25% of, you know, new diagnoses were among Black MSM. And then it was 46% by, you know, around 2003, you know, was the big number that study in five cities showed 46% of Black and bisexual men were HIV positive. So it took a long time for there to be resources dedicated, number one. I think number two, when we look at healthcare in the United States, before the Affordable Care Act, there was no, you could still be denied healthcare if you were uh, living with HIV in this country. We did not have, and so you saw, you know, in many of the, you know, kind of studies around the 90s and 2000s, lack of access to healthcare, which now we know if folks did not have healthcare, were not in treatment, then it meant that folks were not virally suppressed in the community. And so therefore would have increased you know, HIV possibility of transmission. I used to describe it this way to folks in the mid 2000s. So if I'm in New York City, for instance, and say like the, you know, early mid 2000s, if I were 
at a white gay bar, right? And I met somebody mm-hmm. and we went home, had sex or whatever, unprotected. You know, my chances of contracting HIV were probably like one in 10. That number was more like one in two, one in three when you talk about Black gay and bisexual men in New York City. And so, and because of the, again, uh, higher rates of joblessness, which means higher rates of, of not having health insurance, et cetera, meant that I was more likely to encounter somebody in the Black community who was not on treatment and not violently suppressed, right? Right. Now, some of that has changed in the advent of, you know, the Affordable Care Act and in certain places in the country where there's more health insurance coverage. And that is definitely one of the things that research has shown us has helped drop the HIV rates in, you know, Medicaid expansion states. But what it has also done is further entrench HIV rates, particularly among, you know, Black and Latinx folks in the Southern states. So, you know, from Texas to Georgia to Mississippi to Alabama to Florida, that is the new, the epicenter of the epidemic at this point. But we still see those disparities in other parts of the country, but we are seeing rates go down among, you know, communities that were hardest hit because of just having more folks with comprehensive health care in states that actually expanded Medicaid. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point that you make about that kind of the relative risk per encounter, how if your sexual networks have a higher prevalence of HIV, then that one chance encounter is much more likely to lead to HIV transmission. So that's a different kind of prevention messaging as well. And since our audience here is really based mainly clinicians, something that is very important to me as a person that sees patients living with HIV and also doing a lot of prevention work is what role does structural racism and oppression play in the lives of young gay men? What does that kind of factor in like their lives, their lived experience when accessing HIV testing, treatment and prevention? And and I think it's important for providers to kind of understand that a little bit better. Sure. So I think the way, you know, obviously racism and, and homophobia show up for Black gay men One, I mean, in some ways functions just the way racism functions in our society. So I often tell people just because, you know, I'm a gay man does not mean that I don't also deal with I've been pulled over by police officers. I've had guns pulled on me by police in several instances in different cities across the United States, you know, dealt with just walking behind somebody who's white and, you know, having a white woman clutch her purse or those kinds of things. So I think just those sort of instances of racism and microaggressions still exist for Black gay men as well as the other other Black men. So that's number one. We still are under the same sort of structural kind of forces of racism uh, in those kind of individual interactions. But it also plays out in terms of similar dynamics around uh, poverty. And there, you know, just some research over the, you know, last like 10 or 15 years looking at kind of poverty and economic issues within the LGBT community still shows that Black LGBT folks are still more likely to be unemployed or underemployed, to have a, a lack of access to comprehensive health insurance, to also feel discriminated against, right, in, yeah. in the community. So, you know, we still see so these sort of structural forces that help shape kind of people's ability to have jobs, to be housed, to have health care are still at play in terms of, of driving the epidemic. I'll say this, too. I think given, you know, the audience of clinicians, I think one of the other challenges is that, you know, I think in the, the course of our approach to promoting, you know, HIV prevention or treatment in our kind of social marketing, et cetera, has in some ways, while we've we've sort of tried to focus attention to Black, you know, MSM and trans women in communities about getting tested or getting access to PrEP, et cetera, I think that some of that kind of hyper-targeting message actually lands on Black LGBT folks in a way that I think actually perpetuates some of the problems. So I think for many folks who are, you know, Black and LGBTQ, sometimes feel that the sort of public health community is just hyper-obsessed with their zero status, right? Right. One way or the other. And Mm -hmm. don't think about us as actual human beings, as people who, you know, have lives, hopes, dreams, or, you know, have other 
functions in our communities, right? And so sometimes that kind of hyper-targeting, as we call it in public health, around, you know, kind of risk messages actually just turn people off because they feel like they're constantly bombarded with messages about make sure you don't get HIV or make sure you get on right. PrEP or whatever in ways that separate them, I think, out from the kind of larger Black community. And I think we have to rethink how we do some of that work if we really want to engage a broader swath of of Black LGBT folks, uh, particularly around HIV uh, treatment and prevention. Right. Yeah, that that concept of the hyper-marketing is the first time I'm hearing that. But yeah, I can see where it sounds like, while well-intentioned, like the field of HIV has made, you know, a number of missteps along the way. But we now know that there are advocates like yourself and also public health leaders who have been shifting the field in the right direction. What are some strategies that you feel have worked well? As a former New York City resident and was a part of the some of the kind of you know background policy work of the statewide in the epidemic plan, I actually think, I mean, and we, we see it in some of the kind of initial data I mean, COVID sort of has thrown us off a loop in other other areas of public health. But I think, you know, that first five years of the implementation of the in the epidemic strategy, we have seen reductions in HIV rates among black and brown, gay and bisexual men and trans women as well in the state. And so I think some of that work to just focus on making sure that first and foremost, we're kind of addressing the epidemic from a kind of status neutral standpoint, which the New York City Department of Health did a lot of work to, to implement to make sure that uh, we also made prevention and treatment services uh, more widely available around the city so that the city health department really investing resources in providing you know, access to PrEP in, you know, in Harlem, in Bed-Stuy, in the other places and not sort of kind of the initial structure was that, you know, the sort of Chelsea Clinic was kind of more seen as the sort of LGBT hub where a lot of those kind of services were more available. And and, and also, I think, kind of changing the strategy of the, you know, STD, what were, you know, the STD clinics into sexual health clinics. And I think just even that kind of reframe where you're you're talking about asexual health as opposed to disease status was important. And two, that you're also offering people a wide variety of of care in those spaces so that and making sure that if people come in for, you know, whatever kind of STI treatments that they, first of all, have an STI, immediately offering them PrEP made, you know, a huge difference. The move to immediate antiretroviral therapy start as opposed to waiting until people were, you know, sick enough to, uh, you know, get Ryan White or get access to care. Um, I think a lot of that kind of, those things went a long way. And I would say like, kind of for me, the overall takeaway in that is that when we change like really whole systems and not just kind of ghettoize treatment to like the LGBT friendly clinics or whatever, but do the kind of work to really inform wherever folks of whatever race, sexual orientation or gender identity go, they're getting at least some of the same kinds of treatment and the same kind of messages and and frankly, getting it from, you know, in the same way that other folks are getting it so that folks don't feel hyper targeted. I think those things go have gone a long way to making some of the changes that we've seen that have, have really worked are in a working for the better in, in New York City, New York State in particular. And just 40 years into the uh, epidemic is, how far do you think we've come with stigma regarding HIV? I don't think we've come far enough where stigma is concerned. We still, you know, have, I mean, there's so much stigma. I mean, I just think about in the last year, we've had at least one rap artist who's very popular kind of get on stage and you know, say disparaging things about people with HIV. It, um, you know, was in the, the Dave Chappelle special, which has been much discussed and, mm-hmm. and critiqued. It still is the kind of third rail of, or the, the sort of, in, in people's imaginations, the most horrible thing that you could say about somebody or the most, the sort of biggest boogeyman, right, if, right. if you will. And in ways that it's been interesting to see, you know, friends of mine living with HIV also kind of respond to COVID in the sense that like, you know, there's so much more sympathy, right, for people who contract COVID and 
et cetera. And people, you know, I've seen, you know, folks I know who are living with HIV on social media would ever remark on, you know, how even to this day, disclosing one's HIV status is never met with the same kind of, of sympathy or empathy, or it's always, what did you do and how did you get it and all these kind of things. So I think we still have a, a ton of work to do around stigma. And, you know, as I said earlier, I really think one of the ways to get at this is not the only way, but I think that we really need, you know, again, federal level, like kind of engagement. And I, I really think doing those kinds of things that we were doing in the, the 80s, you know, with C.F. Coupin sending, a, you know, letter home to every household, just saying this is what we know about HIV now right. in terms of, right. you know, what being on treatment and being viral suppressed means and what PrEP means and, and giving people tools and how to access that information more regularly could go a long way. And, and I think we, we have to do that. And, and lastly, I'll just say too that, you know, as long as there are laws on the books that also criminalize non-disclosure of HIV status or exposure to HIV, et cetera, it is another big marker of how far we have not come in terms of stigma, right? So I think that we also have to really address those laws. And it's been good to see uh, about half a dozen states in the last 10 years that have reformed, you know, they have, ch- have changed their HIV laws. So we have far more work to do. Right. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, at the beginning of this year, there was approval for long-acting injectables for the treatment of people living with HIV. And starting probably first quarter of next year, there's going to be these long-acting injectables for prevention, PrEP. So given what you know and your experience, and, and I know that you've thought about this as well, um, what do you think about these advances in terms of maybe shifting this kind of these health disparities amongst populations? Do you think that that's a new tool that could be effective? I think that as many options as we have available are Mm -hmm. all all for the better, right? Because for some people, just taking a daily pill is the challenge. In one hand, because I think, you know, for some folks, it's the issue of, you know, having to explain to roommates or to family members if you are, you know, still living at home or whatever, you know, why you have this HIV medication essentially. So for some people being able to, for treatment, which is now approved, but also in the case of PrEP, which is, you know, we think coming down the line very soon for an injectable, offering people different options for, you know, what works for them, I think is is great. However, I think that for me in the last 10 years, I think we should look at the sort of like PrEP 1.0 implementation and rollout as in some ways a cautionary tale. That just because you have a good tool that works, if you put that tool into a system that people either don't have access to because they don't have, you know, the same kind of health coverage, et cetera, if the drug is priced so high that you've created these artificial barriers like prior authorization and all the things that the insurance companies do to try to control costs that ultimately end up put, putting people who have to do so much work in order to access, right, you know, prevention in that case, or even for treatment's sake. I mean, a lot of the, you know, I know friends of mine who are positive who just having all of the income requirements and kind of reauthorization for their Ryan White care takes a lot of the administrative burden on individuals to like do that. And the Biden administration recently made some changes there that I think will be helpful. But I think that as as much as we have like these sort of structural problems where it takes so much energy and effort to just maintain your, your health care, whether we're talking about treatment or in the case of prevention, the harder it's going to be. And so I think that as, you know, we now have an inject long acting injectable uh, treatment and a prep one, you know, rolling out soon. I think we really need to think about how are our systems currently set up to make this the most, to optimize these different options for, you know, antiretroviral therapy or for treatment and not just thinking that, well, it, great, you know, we have this, this tool and thinking that it's the panacea, but we really haven't shifted the care system to actually reach the most people, you know, for a lot of reasons. But again, I think an underexplored kind of conversation in the HIV space is like, 
how the healthcare system is set up to sort of control for access because of the cost of drugs that actually has impacts, you know, downstream, you know, even with things like patient assistance programs and et cetera, there's still an additional administrative burden for people to have to deal with in order to just get access to the care that they need. Right. I think that you put it beautifully, actually, the intervention is only as good as the system it is implemented in. So that's a very important point. You kind of touched on this a little bit, but as a country and as the field of public health, and you touched about some of these things, and I'd be interested to hear more about what the Biden administration is doing, but how can we do better? And what do we need to do to really address these disparities so that we don't have the same issues of these first 40 years and we get closer to really ending the epidemic for all? Sure. So I think first and foremost, we've got to figure out a way to expand public insurance, right, through Medicaid or Medicare, whatever you want to call it, to every person living in this country who does not currently have it. So that some of the discussions in Washington now about, you know, creating a kind of Medicaid workaround for the states that refuse to expand it, but to allow individuals in those states to just get into a federal Medicare program or Medicaid program. I think is is critical, right? So just comprehensive healthcare. And we've seen that even in the case of treatment, that you know, studies that have looked at whether a person living with HIV has, you know, Ryan White care, which is pays for their kind of HIV care, or if they have, you know, a health plan that's more comprehensive. The people with the comprehensive health plan actually have better HIV outcomes in terms of higher rates of viral suppression, et cetera, right? Like so I think. We know that comprehensive health care is a factor. So um, that's, to me, uh, has to be absolutely in the mix. Secondly, I think we have to do something with the sort of knowledge gap. In the last couple of days here, people you know, have been kind of remembering the 30th anniversary of Magic Johnson's announcement, his HIV status, you know, which was so pivotal in this country for a lot of reasons. And at the same time, many of us, are, I talk to people all the time who are really walking around with information that's as old as Magic Johnson's uh, disclosure, right? right? So when I tell people about PrEP who don't know, heads explode. And so I think that what we have to do, I would love to see the Surgeon General do what we did in the 1980s, which is to send another mailer to every household in the United States telling people, this is what we know about HIV now, right? We know that if people are on treatment, right, that they and get virally suppressed, they cannot transmit the virus um, sexually. And then secondly, here's what you should know about PrEP. I think we really need that level of, of engagement again, just to update people's just base knowledge, right? We still see so much ignorance in people having the same ideas about what it means to have HIV from 30 years ago. So I think to me, it's, it's those pieces, expanding access to healthcare. It's expanding the base knowledge of the average person in this country about HIV. And then I think we have to really think about, you know, investing in the kind of, you know, research and development for, you know, different treatment and prevention modalities that allow people the most choice in terms of how they take care of their health, whether, you know, folks are positive. So I think the space of, of long-acting injectables and some other things that are like long-acting pills that are also being, being tried or topical PrEP or one-time sort of usage you know, oh. PrEP or, or time for, for cisgender women PrEP with contraception, right? Like I think a lot of these tools are, are really critical in terms of our really being able to to really fully end the epidemic as we know it. Kenyon, I wanted to kind of just ask you, because I know that you've done a lot of work with this, but just in terms of mass imprisonment, could you kind of unpack a little bit your thoughts about how HIV prevention and also just in, um, improved linkage in that population can be accomplished and what are the gaps there? Sure. So I think that, you know, mass imprisonment is, I think, where particularly where African-Americans are concerned, is one of the primary drivers of of the epidemic and the course of the epidemic. So when we start from, you know, kind of day one, four years ago, 1981, our discovery of HIV in this country tracks alongside the expansion of the drug war and our kind of prison boom. Right. So. 
work by, you know, people like, you know, Bob Full of Love and Mindy Thompson Full of Love, I think could really analyze this in, I think, some really critical ways. So one, just the kind of massive incarceration of Black people in the United States actually created the kinds of conditions for infectious disease to spread. First of all, in the kind of early in the, the mid 80s, before we started building tons of prisons, we were locking people up in local jails that were, I mean, you look at the news stories from the 80s and all the stuff about overcrowding in, in prisons and jails while there was a, a bloodborne pathogen, right? Or, you know, and in right. bodily fluid passing. So I actually think that a lot of that, the kind of mass imprisonment in the 80s and 90s actually helped fuel transmission in ways. But also when we look at just mass incarceration itself creates these sort of migratory patterns, right? That we think about, we, we often in global public health talk about, you know, mass migrations as forms of kind of drivers of infectious disease. And if you, I was to use this example. So for New York State, the state of New York State, for example, right? And this is long, this is starting to be written about in like the early 2000s, but it's still applicable. 70% of prisoners in New York State come from seven neighborhoods in New York City, right? And when you look at those seven neighborhoods, all but say, you know, Chelsea and, you know, Hell's Kitchen together, which is where a lot of white gay men live, the other neighborhoods, the overlay of, the, you know, HIV rates map onto those same neighborhoods, right? With, like I said, the exception of, of Chelsea. And so when you look at it that way, and you start to really look at that data and see that you have, in some cases, 10%, 20% of the population of like Black and Latino folks in those neighborhoods are in prison and in, or jail at any given time. And so if you have that kind of rate of people circling in and out of the community, You've disrupted people's social networks, their sexual networks, their employment status and ability to take care of themselves, all of which are drivers of transmission and the epidemic. And so until we actually stop incarcerating in this country at the rates that we do, the sort of not just people often think it's about the sex in prisons, right, peace. And we also should be talking about prep in prisons, frankly, right? <laughs> I think that's a an emerging conversation we need to have. But it's actually more about the fact that prisons themselves create these sort of massive disruptions in communities because you're constantly churning people from those communities in and out that disrupts people's social and sexual networks that become opportunities for various infectious disease to transmit. And so if we decarcerate, first and foremost, and stop that process, you actually will do a lot to, in, to sort of decrease, you know, transmission, I think, in, in communities. That is very sobering. And I think a lot makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you want providers and public health professionals to know? One of the things that for providers, I think specifically speaking as a Black gay man, I think we come in all, you know, shapes, sizes, gender presentations, et cetera. And I think not making assumptions about either somebody's risk profile, should they disclose to you their, you know, sexual orientation or gender identity, I think is important. But also not assuming that just because somebody doesn't necessarily appear gay to you, right, doesn't mean that they aren't. And it also doesn't mean that they're necessarily quote unquote, on the down low, right? It just made me, <laughs> you just didn't necessarily read it. I think that providers should be tailoring or creating kind of messages in terms of talking to their patients about, you know, sexual health and risk that are applied writ large, right? Without making assumptions one way or the other. And that's sort of one piece that goes a long way. And I, I think where PrEP is concerned, one of the challenges it has been some of the going through the sort of sexual risk histories in term in order to determine sort of prep eligibility. And when we know looking at black gay men, black cis women, black trans women too, that our risk factors for HIV are not actually about having higher rates of risky behavior, right? And so if we're looking at candidates for PrEP based on a kind of individual risk profile, you miss people who actually really need access to PrEP. And so we have to actually rethink 
how we do that work. And I've said to providers in other conversations that your questions, if you're thinking about folks who are candidates for PrEP should be, are you having sex or do you want to be, <laughs> right? <laughs> and if that's the case, you are a candidate for PrEP. Let's make sure we, you know, test, make sure you're not currently HIV positive, any other STIs, including, you know, hepatitis B or whatever. Make sure all of that is, is taken care of. And then you should be a candidate for PrEP. It shouldn't be about how many people I've had sex or whether I've had, you know, anal intercourse and last. All that stuff is in some ways irrelevant. And I think it actually creates another sort of barrier to giving people, you know, um, access to something that could really work for them. That's great. Thank you so much, Kenyon, for joining me today. This really has been an interesting and informative conversation. I mean, of course, there's a lot more here that we can impact, but I think we got to a lot of it in this episode. So I just want to ask you, where can people learn more about your work and or this topic? Sure. So I think in terms of, you know, my my work, I would you can follow Prep for All, you know, mm-hmm. on all the you know social media channels and our, our website. So just uh, Prep Number Four All dot org or Prep Number Four All Now. I think that's uh, on Twitter is how we how we are. Or you can follow me directly. I'm on all things, just at my name at Kenyon Farrow on all the platforms. And folks can can also you know reach me there. Thank you so much, Kenyon. Thank you very much. Now that we spoke with Kenyon Farrow about the historical and cultural reasons behind HIV disparities, we would like to shift to discussing what these disparities mean for patients accessing healthcare and what providers can do to better meet their needs. In this segment, we are joined by Dr. Sabrina Gard. Sabrina Gard is an assistant professor of internal medicine at the Mount Sinai Hospital and an American Academy of HIV Medicine Certified HIV Specialist. She's a primary care provider and served as an educator of internal medicine residents at a Mount Sinai Hospital practice in East Harlem, New York. She also provides HIV treatment and prevention care at the Mount Sinai's Institute for Advanced Medicine Comprehensive Health Center in Chelsea. She received her master's in public health at the University of California, Berkeley, and her clinical interests include identifying and addressing structural determinants of inequity as they relate to HIV incidence, as well as promoting HIV prevention in Black and intersectional communities of the United States through policy. Welcome, Sabrina, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And wow, what an introduction. I forgot that was me for a second. My pleasure. Please tell me a little bit what got you into this work. And what makes this topic so important to you? I knew for a long time that in my adult doctor life that I'd be mm-hmm. doing, that I'd be providing primary care. And when I thought about thinking of what I would want to be interested in specifically within the field of medicine, HIV has always been mm-hmm. um, of interest to me, particularly with the history that it's had, uh, the epidemic has had in this country. I was born after the HIV epidemic began in the United States and was still kind of coming of age, you know, during the height of the pandemic. I was still, you know, in in childhood. The depictions of what it was like to be positive, who was positive in the media was always something that I found fascinating. I knew that this was an infectious disease. I knew that, I knew the way that it was transmitted. It was always interesting to see how it was portrayed in the media. I was the kind of kid that watched TV all the time. It's how I learned a lot of things. So I think because of how devastating the epidemic was, it was always something that piqued my interest. So when it came time to deciding that I would be in medicine, when it came time to figuring out what I was interested in particular, I really did want to focus on this really devastating, again, this was media portrayal, illness that still we hadn't had a cure for, that we didn't have any real prevention strategies other than barrier protection for. And that's how IV became something that was interesting for me as I learned more through my medical training 
I learned that what was portrayed in the media was very different than what was actually going on, you know, and of course that had something to do in part with the advancements that we'd made um, in HIV treatment, but I still noticed that there was this big disconnect between who was getting, you know, who was getting HIV, who was being portrayed with HIV in the media, and how come there weren't other stories being told, and how come there were some communities that were so disproportionately impacted, and, and even in real life, not just in media, but in real life, and how can we get to the bottom of this? And that's how I put myself into this field very early. And I've, I've never looked back. Right. What was your experience as a young girl growing <laughs> up in um, New York and your interactions with healthcare? I just remember you did tell me a story. And how did that shape you? And what insights did you get as a young girl that made you this fabulous physician now? Well, I mean, in summary, it was god awful, right? Okay. <laughs> I was born and raised in New York City. And when I start talking about it, you'll, you'll hear my Staten Island accent come out, but it's going to come back. I was born and raised in New York City. And, you know, I was raised um, as one of eight children. Um, I was the second oldest. So I even had like a, a very like kind of parental air about me when I was younger. But my mom, English is not her first language. And, you know, while she has only spoken English to us, like it, it could be very difficult for her to you know, really like be in a, in the context of like a doctor's visit, for example, and really be able to grasp everything that's kind of being thrown at her. So when I was younger, we didn't have a ton. Um, so when it came to our healthcare, you know, I was insured with, with Medicaid, like pretty much up until I was a, until I was an actual physician, I think even through like med school, I still had Medicaid. And, you know, my mom, her children were all small at the same time. So we're kind of all going to the doctors together and the clinics that we had to go to were these hospital-based type clinics where the visits are very short and everything is kind of snap, snap, snap. But I remember, I specifically have recollections of just being super disappointed about like what was going on when we would go to our doctor's visits. Like it didn't ever feel anyone really tried to explain everything to my mom. And I would try to be a, a tran like a translator of medical information to some extent when I was younger and we would go to all of these, these doctor's visits. But I remember being just very, very disappointed. And we hear a lot of stories of people that decided to become a doctor because they just wanted to help people. And they saw, you know, what it was like to be a doctor on television. And, and it was very light and positive pathway or deciding that medicine was going to be for them. And for me, it was more, what's going on here sucks, right? So this is something that I need to cut. I, I can do a better job at this. So let me try to get into the system and go to med school and, and be a physician because I think that if I'm here, I can maybe get a better sense of how I can make some of these changes that might make it a better experience where folks actually feel like they that they're being cared for as opposed to just being a name on a list of appointments for the day. That's how I came to the decision to be a physician. But my experiences with healthcare up to the point that I was a physician myself or, or in med school or physician in training has really been that of frustration, of never really feeling like folks are listening, of feeling like you know, my presence was more of, of an inconvenience more than anything. And this is just from someone going to the doctors for either you know health maintenance or feeling like I need medical advice. And when you have that feeling that I know that I'm going to have an experience that's not positive, so why am I going to do this anyway? I can identify with that feeling so much. And it's why I've always been the kind of physician that I have been to my patients, because I think when you we can get folks to feel comfortable revealing sometimes very, very sensitive information and feeling like they're being heard and feeling like someone's on their side, that can be the difference between someone who is open to taking the advice of a medical professional or a provider and someone who is not willing to take that advice because they've just had bad experiences along the way. And so because I know what it's like to have a bad experience, I don't ever want to be that bad experience for another person. 
And when I'm teaching other younger doctors how to become physicians, that is a really, really important part of the teaching that we're dealing with aunts and uncles and mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters. We're dealing with humans first. The fact that they're your patient right now is is almost secondary. So it's important for us to know who these folks are because this is how we can build trust in a system that historically have done things that certainly has contributed to lots of mistrust and distrust in general. Thank you for sharing that story with us. Now, I can see how those early years kind of shaped you. I, I mean, because I've seen you providing care to patients and I've just always been impressed how you kind of have this holistic approach. How have you seen these issues of inequities and disparities kind of show up in your work with patients? And do you have any stories or examples that you can share? So when it comes to treatment, you know, the stories that my patients feel comfortable enough telling me can sometimes be really horrifying. So for example, just using an example in the last in the last month or so, I've met multiple people who've come who recently, you know, come to the United States seeking asylum from their home countries because of difficulties uh, or fear and, and, you know, feeling threatened when they're at home because of, you know, who they are, who they love. They come to the United States, you know, hoping to get care. You know, they are HIV positive. Um, some I see for PrEP, some I see for, um, for actual treatment of HIV, having been accessing healthcare for, you know, weeks or months and sometimes a year plus at that point and not having been offered treatment, which is stunning because in 2021, especially when we know that, you know, we treat all comers, we treat folks as no regardless of CD4 count to have been accessing healthcare and still not the level of access to have treatment or have treatment that's actually easy to easy to take you know, one pill, once a day regimens, making sure that they come in for labs on a routine basis. There are a lot of barriers. And sometimes I feel helpless as a physician, as an individual physician to address those barriers for this individual patient, because if this is just the one that I'm seeing now, how many others are there that haven't come through my office yet? Right. I think as medical providers, I mean, just as you mentioned, I think it's interesting to see how we've come so far in terms of these scientific developments, you know, the the once daily pills, but that these disparities still persist. I was hoping we could dig in a little more just addressing these disparities in particular with HIV acquisition and HIV rates. How do you feel PrEP can play a role in addressing these gaps? My simplistic view of it is anybody that is having sex could be a good candidate for PrEP. So that's pretty much most people. We can narrow that by saying anyone that's having sex with a person of unknown status without a condom, which is still a significant amount of people. But in order for somebody to actually get on PrEP, they, one, need to know that it exists. They have to, they need to know, two, that it exists and that they are a potential candidate. Now they know that it exists. They know that they're a potential candidate. They have to have access to provider that will offer it to them if they maybe don't feel comfortable enough to ask their provider about it directly. And if their provider offers it to them, they accept it. And then they get a prescription. Their prescription is covered or paid for. And then they get the pills in hand. And then they're taking the pills every day. So it sounds like something extremely simple on its surface. But all of these things falling into place, in some instances, can be miraculous, right? One of the hard parts is getting the messaging out there that that PrEP exists because I'm still seeing patients, younger patients, middle-aged patients, older patients that are very much candidates that don't even know that this strategy exists. And if they know that it exists, they don't think that they are the candidates that this strategy is recommended for. And that goes back a little bit to something that I heard Kenyon say when it comes to messaging about who's a good candidate, right? So we, we get the word out from advertisement and media is, is really, really important in terms of 
sending messages out to to the people that they then bring back to their provider. If folks know that it exists, the ones I'm seeing often that a lot of folks know that it exists, but they don't believe that it was ever made for them. So in the case of cisgendered women, for example, don't think a lot of the marketing in the beginning was very focused on a different population that did not necessarily include cisgendered women. So they don't even think that this was for them. So as the provider, it's my job to not only ascertain the information that I need to know that they're a good candidate, but to then myth bust, (laughs) for lack of a better term, that it's not for, that it's for some people and, and not actually for others. I try to send the message that it's for everybody. And then if I get to the point that the patient or person in front of me knows that they're a good candidate, knows that it exists, making sure, you know, getting providers to actually have this conversation and write a prescription, there's still lots of providers that are not comfortable doing that, where people don't necessarily feel like they can go to their own provider that they may have a good relationship with and and actually get prep. What I'm trying to get at is at every level, there are every level that it takes to actually get from a person that qualifies for PrEP but doesn't have a prescription to that same person having prescription in hand and taking it, every level presents it like another challenge is presented because that person can get a prescription and maybe there's an issue with insurance coverage. And the provider or the office that the provider is working in may have the resources to help a person figure out how they can get PrEP paid for. And in New York, we're in the clinics that I've happened to work in always, I've been lucky to have great staff that are really, really hands-on and, and make sure that our patients are able to get PrEP. But sometimes I can't assume that it, that exists in every practice. So actually getting it paid for may be an issue and then getting it refilled is another issue. So, so many different problems present itself. And as we start getting into the nuances of individual groups of, or not individuals, but groups of or pop certain populations, these barriers may be different in each, in each group that we're talking about. So what's a barrier generally for perhaps the population of undocumented, because we have to worry about a lot more about insurance and things like that, may be different for a different population who the main challenge is getting that population the message that they too qualify for PrEP. So the challenges are, are all over the place and they're adding up the longer this exists. But I hope through policy, this is something that we can address so that everybody who qualifies knows about it and can get it easily. Yeah, those are big hurdles. We have a long way to go. Talking a little bit about having that patient in front of you, and you kind of commented, this medical intervention is not for me. Could you just walk us through how you bring up the topic of PrEP? Let's say, for example, a cisgender woman that's... yeah. So for me, it's easy because I have spent my entire life uh, wanting to talk about things that make people uncomfortable. It's like, it's a, it's a trait. It's, a, it's literally a character trait of mine. And, and I'm grateful for it because I think it, it really does make me the provider that I am. I'm very curious as an individual. And that translates to, that translates to how I, I gather information from people that are coming to me for medical advice. So when it comes to bringing up the topic of PrEP, we first need to bring up the topic of sex. And that's something that I feel totally comfortable doing most of the time anyway, but have noticed that's a comfort that is very unique to me. In our society, we have long been very hush-hush about the idea um, about sex and talking about it with folks that are coming to us for advice about how to be healthy, how to get healthy, and so on and so forth. So on one hand, it's understandable when a patient comes in and has a difficult time kind of navigating the topic of of sex and sexual health. It's even more consequential when the provider that they're seeking that medical advice from is just as uncomfortable with talking about sex and sexual health. So that's a huge barrier is we need to, as a society, get comfortable with talking about sex and sexual health. So that way these things are not so taboo and people can have an open avenue to be honest about advice that they, that they may need 
to remain healthy in their sex lives. So when a person is coming to me for general care and we ask all sorts of questions about medical history, surgical history. Mm-hmm. We ask, I ask about their families to get a sense of what other medical conditions that they may be at risk for. But part of my information gathering during a general visit where there are no other complaints, for example, is asking about their sex life. And I generally, after prefacing my questions with a statement that I'm going to ask a set of questions that may be uncomfortable, but it has, I'm asking so that I can make sure that I'm giving them the right advice for them on how to stay healthy. And it has to do with their sexual health and their sex lives. We talk about sex. We talk about what parts of their bodies they're using to have sex. If they have any concerns about anything about sexual infections or other things that can happen from sex that they may not be interested in right now, such as pregnancy, for example. And I asked first, if they have their own strategies to prevent the things that they may not want. And then I ask them if they know, I ask them if they know about PrEP or if they've heard about it. I love that question. And I ask it almost every time I ask, no, I'm talking about sex and sex health because the amount of times I hear, no, I've never heard of this or, oh, I've heard of it, but it's not for me is that's actually most of the time. I'm mostly hearing that. And interestingly, I'm hearing that mostly from cisgendered women because a lot of the marketing has not been towards cisgendered women. So they don't see it as something that's for them. But I asked them if they know that it exists, that we have a pill that if taken every day, very similar to birth control in the prevention of pregnancy, if that's not something that they're interested in, we have a pill that prevents HIV if they're not interested in getting that infection. And and most people are interested, if they're negative, most people are interested in remaining negative. Um, So when I... When I pose the question like that, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I did know it existed. I didn't know that it was for me, but yes, I want to know more. And I use that as an opportunity to talk about prep a little bit more. But this takes time, Tony. This is not a quick one-off, check-off-a-box conversation that's very quick. And I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but when it comes to structures that prevent the advancement of HIV prevention strategies such as PrEP, we would be remiss if we're not talking about how the structure of a vis- of a clinic visit and the pressure to be very, the time constraint that providers are right. always under, for example, that's a part, those are policies and those are structures that prevent this in-depth conversation from happening in all cases. You can have it if you happen to have, you know, a lot of extra time on your hand or a lot of no-shows, but If we as providers are seeing patients exactly as our schedule shows at the beginning of the day, I can understand how everything that I just talked about, including talking about past medical history and family history, and of course, the uncomfortable topic of sex, we can then understand how a lot of folks just may not get to that part of the conversation, which means that folks that actually have PrEP indications may not be identified. Yeah. And that, that is a lot to pack in, in into a short. It's a um, lot. I'll never, lot. You know, I'll never deny it. It's a lot. So when it comes to actually taking the time out to have these conversations with patients, you know, this has to be, this is a face-to-face, you know, or video face-to-face conversation that you have when looking into someone's eyes and not looking at a computer. You have to be interested. And because as soon as someone detects, I mean, I know when I'm talking to somebody and I feel like, I'm making them uncomfortable. Or if I'm, we're going to talk about something that's uncomfortable, it's easier for me to kind of stay clammed up if there's like a disconnect there. Because people don't tend to want to offer up information that is uncomfortable for them to offer, or they feel maybe uncomfortable for someone to hear. And that's important, especially when we're talking about the ways that people are using their bodies to have sex, they can consider it, they're getting messages that this is something that might make someone uncomfortable. Maybe I won't talk about it. And we can't do that if we're really trying to understand what someone's risk is and if we can help them be more safe. That's great. You know, since we know that it's not just about like PrEP and these medical interventions and these life-saving treatments, but also the systems and the social inequities that influence the accessibility and adoption of these interventions, and you touched upon that a little bit, you know, what can providers do to better address the needs of these communities and just any tips or pearls that you would provide to providers? 
given it's a that? Great, it's, a great, it's a great question. And I'm going to try to say this as positively as possible. We as individual providers certainly do have a huge role to play when it comes to ensuring that the folks that come through our doors to ask our advice on how they can care for their bodies to keep them healthy for as long as possible, we have a huge role to play when it comes to addressing health disparities is what we'll call them, right? Um, Which is essentially just differences in in health outcomes um, in different populations. But we're, as much as we are, we can think about folks as on a population level, when it comes down to our office and it comes down to the folks that come through, you know, not just our office doors, but our individual exam room doors, we're dealing with people first, right? We're dealing with people. And yes, those people can be lumped into various categories. We can call them racial categories, which is totally a political and social construct, or ethnic categories, or gender categories, so on and so forth, we're dealing with individuals first. So I say that to say, when it comes to addressing population-wide disparities, I do think that the role is primarily with folks in power at the level of where policies are made, at the levels of where decisions that ultimately trickle down to affect the way that us as individual providers are able to see these patients. When it comes to, you know, really making shifts there, we as providers can certainly be huge advocates and voices in the rooms of those that have the power to make policy changes. Um, We have to be able to use our voice and be able to Count, recount our experiences um, with those folks that make those decisions so that they understand the what we're up against when it comes to differences in outcomes and how and how those differences come to be. Now, at the level of the individual, however, right, as when we're talking about ourselves and what we can do when we're seeing the patients, I think the very first level has to be, we have to be aware. I think as individual providers, we tend to do this thing where Maybe I don't want to see, like if I looked at my own individual patient panel, right? And I'm talking about panel audits. If we're saying like, as an example of one thing that we can do as providers to stay aware of what's going on with your own individual panel, if we don't look, then we'll never know that there are differences between how well I'm doing with offering a flu shot to some groups of folks versus others. The same thing can be said about prep, right? How how many times have I had a have I offered this patient prep, right? This is a, a age is not a condom, but if we talk about young people who are having sex, how many of my young sexually active folks are on prep right now? Right. If we looked, we would be disappointed. I'm sure, right? Right, I, right? I do this all the time, and I'm still disappointed. But it's not until you're faced with that information about what you can do directly and or changes that you may need to make as an individual in your own practice. It's not until we do that, until we face the music that we're even going to begin the hard work of of actually, you know, making those changes. So the number one, two and three uh, pearls of advice that I would give to fellow providers that are out here taking care of patients and are very interested in you know, making sure that your folks that are HIV negative remain HIV negative is take a look at your panel and see who's on Tugata, see who's on Discovery and look at the folks who are not and see if you've ever had a conversation about about this with those folks. And if you haven't, ask yourself, why not? Right? Like, has it, have you been, have you always been pressed for time every time you've you've seen them? Have you offered and and they said no? Uh, Okay, right? You know, every. Everyone that you offer it to doesn't necessarily need to say yes, but does that mean that you only have that conversation once and never have that conversation again? What are some changes that may need to be made just within your practice um, that might make it easier for you or that might streamline the process and make, make it easier for you to offer more of your patients prep? Does someone else need to be hired? Maybe a health educator? You know, do you need to change the way folks are scheduled so that you actually have the time. There are lots of individual and small, tiny things, but it it has to start with being aware of what's going on in your own backyard. Take a look at your patient panel, do an audit 
see who's on prep, see who's not, see who hasn't come in for a refill in a long time, because that's the, that's the small piece that you can do yourself. That is really great practical advice. I mean, yeah, basically what you do not measure, you cannot change or address. So (laughs) something as simple as that. And I think we can all be doing a lot more of that. And I just want to thank you for joining me today. And where can people learn more about your work and or this topic? Yeah, I would definitely direct folks also um, in the middle of um, with a couple of friends of mine starting a nonprofit organization called Not Just a Black Body, where we focus Mm. on community engagement and justice, health justice and health equity. So if they want to learn more about that, they can visit our website at www.notjustablackbody.com. We have, uh, we're at not just the hashtag, not just the black body on Twitter and Instagram. We also have an Instagram and um, Twitter account that's also under the same name, not just the black body. So I encourage folks to, to look up what we're doing and to sign up for our newsletter so that they can become involved in, in anything that we're doing in the future. Well, awesome. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.